and they met with George Lucas, who, I mean, Richard would be better to tell the story, who basically laughed them out of the room, thinking no one would ever watch a fully CG movie. <laughs> I think the idea was, it was possible it would be a very different art direction than you would see today, because you have to design around the limitations of what the technology can do at the time. Uh, Tron being a good example of that, right? Very simple geometric things. There's a reason that the first movies that fully animated movies came out were plastic toys and exoskeleton insects and then robots. <laughs> There's a reason for that um, because those things are really doable. My guest today is Carl Rosenberg, former president of PDI, Pacific Data Images, a company focused on visual effects, TV shows, commercials, and films such as Batman Forever, The Rival, Terminator 2, and Toys. They later expanded into feature animation films with 1998s and followed by Shrek in 2001, which went on to win the Oscar for Best Animated Feature in 2002. DreamWorks acquired PDI in 2000, renaming it PDI DreamWorks. Together, we talk about the founding days of PDI, the importance of a strong core team, how to negotiate contracts, and PDI DreamWorks' final days in 2015. You are listening to The 21 Artist Show, a podcast that inspires creatives to make meaningful content to pursue their passions. I'm talking with creators, artists, and engineers about their careers, lessons they have learned, and how to make an impact. I'm your host, Alexander Richter. I'm a technical director and coach in visual effects, animation, and games. For more content, go to 21artistshow.com. Enjoy the show. I'm super excited to have you back on the show, Carl. Thank you, and it's really fun to be here again. Carl Rosendale was actually my second guest here on the 21 Artist Show. Last time we talked about company culture and how PDI maintained a healthy and productive environment. So make sure to check out the episode. It's still one of my favorites. This time we focus on founding and the CEO part of PDI. I'm interested in how it is to found and manage such a big and successful company and also how to part ways from it after two decades. Let us start at the beginning. How did you came up with the idea of founding PDI and where were you at that time? I had just graduated from Stanford University, but in high school, I did a lot of filmmaking. I grew up in Los Angeles and was surrounded by the filmmaking culture, although my family wasn't in that industry. Um, came up to Stanford, got a degree in electrical engineering. It was the closest thing that you could do to computer science as an undergraduate at the time. Uh, and somehow really wanted to combine my interest in engineering and technology uh, with filmmaking. And I had been playing around um, at my job after, after I graduated, which was with Memorex Corporation. A uh, guy worked with there had an Apple II, and he let me dabble with it. And I wrote a program that could spin a, a wireframe box. And it's like, oh, that's very cool. And in college, I had done some projects in, around graphics. Um, so this was 1979 that I graduated. I started PDI in 1980 with the idea of I really want to take my interest in computers and graphics and apply it to TV and film somehow. But at that point, there was no computer graphics industry. Uh, there was George Lucas was just in the process of building up Lucas Digital. Ed Catmull was going there and the whole team that eventually became Pixar and became Lucas Digital. Um, there was Triple I down in Los Angeles, 
digital effects and magi, I think, had already started in New York. And that that was basically the landscape. Uh, so I decided I would just start a company myself to do it, knowing really not a lot about it. <laughs> so you basically started the company like directly after your, your degree? Did you get a job in between or is about it just nine like months jumping after I graduated? Door? Yeah, so pretty, pretty quickly. Uh, and I talked to my dad and who was an independent businessman, an entrepreneur, but in industrial construction. So he built pipelines and factories and things like that. Uh, and said, I was really interested in starting a company to do this. And so he loaned me the money to do it, pretty confident that he would probably lose his money. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the caveat was he would loan me the money and I had to get the equivalent of an MBA, Master's in Business Administration degree out of it. So, so it was laid down at the beginning that I had to do all the financial part, the accounting part, learn everything I could about business Uh, even though what I was trying to do was create a, a, a creative endeavor. Um, and that was incredibly valuable because that, um, that knowledge and that pressure for not just me, but our whole company as we grew to be uh, fiscally responsible and take it seriously as a business became part of the, the, uh, the DNA of the company. And that was a really important part later on. For the first year, it was just me. I rented a little office space because I knew if I worked at home, I'd just spend time playing with the dog and hanging out in the kitchen. <laughs> so I rented a little office space, uh, bought a computer and wrote initially just a paint system so I could get pictures onto a screen. Um, I did some some business graphics for Hewitt Packard uh, slides, which were actually 35 millimeter slides back then. Uh, and during that time, I spent a lot of time networking around, um, and that's when I met Glenn Entis and Glenn Entis and Richard Chung, who were my became my two partners in the company. Uh, Glenn, I met through a group called the Graphics Gathering, which was a spinoff the, of the Homebrew Computer Club uh, here in Silicon Valley, and it was a group of people who were really interested in all things computer graphics who got together regularly to share what they were doing. Uh, and Richard, I had met through the IEEE, which is an electrical engineering association. Um, and they both believed in what I was trying to do and, and decided to join me. So they joined me at the beginning of 1982. And we, we wisely threw away everything I had done up to that point <laughs> and started from scratch. And we had to build the whole computer animation system and everything. At the moment, quite hard to grasp what was actually there at that time, because <laughs> we are now in the time of internet. Everything is like packaged, especially in this industry. If I want to create an animation or whatever, I just go to the sh uh, store and get like Maya, Blender and stuff like that. I think it's still, even for me, like listening, I'm still kind of trying to, to figure out actually the state of uh, the like environment that you were in. What was your goal when you founded it? What was the motivation to actually go that way? Because it's an extra mile most of the people are kind of happy to find a job after you studied, you know, it's this kind of typical thing. But what was your motivation to actually found it yourself? And basically, where do you want to go with it? Well, the idea of using computers to make pictures was pretty, not unique. I mean, people were doing it, but very rare, right? So not a lot of people were doing it. And it was done mostly in research and scientific and government kind of applications. But the idea of using computers, which I love, to make pictures and then apply that to 
the television and film industry uh, was intoxicating, right? It was just so exciting to be able to do that and do something unique in that industry. Um, but the state at that point was there was nothing. Uh, the first the first real computer we had was a PDP 1144, so a 16-bit machine with, um, I forget the stats on it, but, you know, less than this watch. <laughs> um, and it had an operating system called Xenix, which was basically Unix, which is Linux, right? So that that operating system and a C compiler. And that was the state of the art. Um, the frame buffer we had, which was the, um, not a GPU, but just the, the memory system for displaying an image, uh, was a television resolution at that point. So, um, 640 by 480, although I think it was actually 512 by 512 pixels, full color. Uh, and it was a, I think like a $60,000 piece of additional equipment. Um, just to display a still image. Uh, and then you had to do um, color map swapping if you wanted to actually show something animated on there. So there was really very little uh, to work with. Uh, and everything was, you know, text terminals, not graphics terminals. Um, remember, this was 1982 that Glenn and Richard and I joined me. The Macintosh came out in 84. Personal computers were just becoming a thing. <laughs> So it was it was early. Macintosh commercialized the the home computer. You you seem to wanted to commercialize three D or animation as part of, yeah. of that. What was the spark for you to 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 do that? Well, I grew up making a lot of movies. Um, my dad had a sixteen millimeter film camera, a Bolex, and you could shoot single frames on there. So we would make movies, and I would do a lot of stop motion animation, um, and it was just magical, right? So that. The, um, I was enamored with special effects movies. I saw 2001 when it came out, which was, I think, 1969. And I think by the time I got out of high school, I had seen it a dozen times. And just the idea that you could create those kinds of environments. Um, Star Wars came out while I was in college, right? And, and that just sparks your imagination. And there was a lot of really interesting graphics and motion control work being done at that point in time. So it's not, you know, people were using computers to help create images. I mean, Star Wars was done with motion control, right? So models and miniatures, but computers to drive the cameras around and move the models. So it wasn't completely out of the realm of using computers in filmmaking, but using them to generate images was still a pretty rare thing. Um, and But I knew it could be done. And uh, as a lover of science fiction, you know, you really believe that things are going to advance. And Moore's Law, right, is going to solve a lot of problems for us in the future. Things aren't possible now, but computers are going to get faster. They're going to get cheaper. They're going to get better. Um, and we can take advantage of all that as those technologies get better if we have a foundation that we can build on top of that. So it was a leap of faith that a lot of those difficult problems would just be solved by technology that comes along. And it didn't seem like it was too early to take a flyer and and go for it. And your goal was not to create software. Your goal was already to create product, kind of animation films or commercial films. Yes. It was always around creating the finished 
animation project, but there was no software available. So we had to build everything from scratch. We had to build the render, the modeling system, the animation system, the lighting, everything. There were opportunities along the way where, where various companies were interested in purchasing PDI to get all the software or licensing the software from us. We only did one software licensing deal, and that was the very first deal we ever did uh, with Globo TV down in Brazil. And they were interested in using our system to produce uh, show openings and station IDs for Ready Globo, the, the huge network in Brazil. And they had been getting work done, I think, at NYIT uh, in New York. And um, so when we showed up at SIGGRAPH in 1982 with a notebook with still images on it, we met up with Jose Diaz there uh, and started building a relationship around what we were doing. And he proposed that they would like to license our software. We didn't even have the software yet. We were in the process of, of building it. So we did that deal. And that was partly cash. So we could, we could pay ourselves and eat and pay our rent. Uh, and a VAX computer, which was a much bigger, more powerful machine than the one that we had. Uh, and that enabled us to, to kind of accelerate what we're doing with a little cash. We could hire a couple more people. And that really started us going. And then the other th wonderful thing about that is in order to prove that the software could do what it, what it was supposed to do, they gave us our first production jobs, right? Doing show openings for uh, Globo TV, which gave us a, a demo reel of actual paid production, not just in-house things that we were doing. And they helped us meet other people within the television graphics industry, which was the first business that we went into. So it really um, gave us a fast start into that business. It's generally the dream to have like like multiple people who are in charge, but in charge of different departments. So you're kind of, because at the end of the day, there's things like interest, you know, like you were more interested maybe in the whole financial thing, as we talked before in the whole company culture, uh, which came after that. Um, and, and maybe the guys were, were more interested in the whole technical thing. Do you think that was super important that you had this too? Or did you think you could have done it by yourself? Yeah, it was super important that we meshed and complemented the way that we did. We were very lucky in that respect. Until Glenn and Richard joined me, it was just me and I was doing everything. When they, when they came in it, and it was just the three of us, we all did everything. Um, Richard wrote the renderer primarily and Glenn wrote the animation system. Uh, I wrote some software in the, for the modeling part, um, but not a lot of it. And we quickly gravitated towards things that were most interesting to us. And I really took the helm on the business side, obviously the, the whole accounting side, because I still had that deal. Right? <laughs> um, but finding, finding business partners when we did the deal with, with Globo, I had to put together um, that whole deal. So the first contract I ever negotiated was an international technology trade agreement. <laughs> it worked out really well. It wasn't planned. We all found our own niches that we were interested in. Um, and they were very complementary with each other. At the same time, for the first three, four years, we were all doing production. So I was doing animation. I um, was the animator for a number of pieces that we did, as was Glenn, as was Richard. Um, as we got bigger, we were hands-on creating animation less and less because there was a whole company to, to run. 
Could I have done it without them? It would have been different. It would have had to have been someone else. I don't think anyone really can start and run a company by themselves. Um, there's a lot of mythology around great business leaders who did it alone, and they didn't. There's always a team of people around them um, that may or may not be getting the credit they deserve. I think having a triad of people, three people, is incredibly powerful. Um, with two, you may be butting heads. With three, it's, you know, there's always kind of negotiations going around and a different opinion. Um, and we meshed really well. We didn't agree on everything by any stretch, but we would talk it out. Sometimes we would yell it out and we would come to a conclusion and a direction that, that we all agreed we would follow. And whatever we decided we would do, we all support it. So, so there was never one of us who was out you know, I don't agree with what the other two think, and I'm going to undermine what they're doing. That never happened. Once once we set a direction, we all supported that direction and went for it. We also took a lot of individual responsibility for the parts we were we were responsible for. So the three of us weren't making every decision as three of us. It was more top-level decisions, cultural decisions, kind of big business direction decisions. Um, but we all could operate pretty autonomously in the parts that we were doing. And I think that trickled down to the rest of the company also. Um, you know, as we discussed before, when we're talking about culture and values, um, there was a lot of autonomy and personal responsibility in the company that I think just filtered down from that. It would be interesting to, to find out, did you kind of discuss that? Is, was that something, because the same thing as with company culture, where there is this this mix between like internal like values that you hope everyone has in the team and something and like rules that you create or at least a guideline like for example in company culture uh this kind of like this is this is the one sentence that we follow basically and the rest like kind of comes from that uh, when you came together and or at least then, then through the years did you kind of create like something like a like rules to communicate and work with each other or was it really very much like just kind of like a feeling thing and respect thing or something like that because it's always important to kind of figure these things out because a lot of people either like uh, get burned from this kind of experience and say i never want to work with someone else i do my own thing or at least they they cannot figure out uh, a good way and then they end up being very bureaucratic you know like where you okay i want to buy a new new logo or new cups for our coffee max so um I'm not sure, so let's make a meeting and discuss that. So it would be really interesting to 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 understand how did you guys do that? How do you do you like figure out the way to communicate and decide together? I'd like to say we were really brilliant and figured that all out ahead of time, but it certainly did not happen that way. It was a lot of just feeling our way blindly through to things that worked. We made a lot of mistakes along the way. We tried we tried a lot of different I won't call it management styles, but but techniques for managing, techniques for production management and tracking time and and process management and production management. We tried a lot of things. We found stuff that worked. We found a lot of things that didn't work. But we talked about it a lot, you know. And we we tried things, and when it didn't work, we we would abandon them. Sometimes consciously, sometimes we would abandon things unconsciously. It's like, oh, we said we were going to do all that stuff, and and we don't. Um, which is a good, good clue that you're not going to. Um, so we, we basically 
found stuff that worked by trying a lot of different things. What was the, the main thing that you, that you felt was the, the connecting tissue that worked for you? One, one I think is a lot of autonomy and responsibility uh, for people. Um, the, uh, there's a lot of things we, like we tried putting in very strict, you know, production management systems, for example, really trying to track stuff at a microscopic level. And that just didn't work. Um, and it didn't work because I think for a lot of reasons, one, it's just really hard for people to, to track their time at that detail And then when you're doing that and you don't get a reward for that, you don't feel the, re you don't see the results, positive results from all this extra work you feel like you're doing, um, then that fails. So we would track how much people were working on production, for example, so that we knew what it costs us to do production. And we would feed that back into the system and use that when we're doing our next estimates and our next you know, production forecast and such. We had pretty good data. We didn't have excellent data. So I think part of it was, finding the level of what's, what's realistic, you know, what's aspirational of, I wish we had all this data, what's realistic, and then how do you use the stuff that's realistic part of it. Um, on the bigger company decisions, we would just talk through stuff a bunch. And I think it was just talking through things, having a lot of communications. And when we didn't communicate well um, is when things broke. Uh, You know, when, when arguments happen because people don't understand stuff, the communication, I think, is what we did really well. And then we tried to gravitate towards the stuff that we were personally really interested in doing. Actually, the responsibility part is actually something that I recently picked also up that as, as something really, really important. When, when I was, for example, working at Weta, that was one of the things that I felt everyone that communicated well also had this feel of responsibility you know you, it, you felt that the people first time they sometimes took responsibility for other people's work in a way that like oh you asked me something and i take a little bit of responsibility for this question so i will not just go the the small mile i will go maybe the extra mile to answer that that was cool but i also noticed is like um if you can divide tasks into responsibility and always figure out it's yours uh not in a way of pointing fingers but more in a way internally like okay i should care about this you know like this act that i have and and not just kind of fall down as not exactly my department and i feel that's that sounds like something that or actually works but what be interesting for me is like communication is key everyone says that and it seems to be like the big mantra at the moment but what is the way that you communicated with each other that, that you felt that worked we had a lot of meetings. <laughs> It's how we communicated. Um, I mean, we had regular production meetings. We had a, we had regular kind of upper management meetings. We had a weekly all hands meeting with the whole company where we would communicate things to the whole company, but it was also an opportunity for anyone to stand up and share work they've done, uh, show what they've done. So, um, Yeah, a lot of that. I did a lot of walking around and talking to people. Um, I would get very restless sitting in an office. <laughs> so it was very ad hoc. Again, you know, a lot of PDI's history happened before the internet. Um, so digital communications were, were not the norm. It was, 
you know, telephone calls, faxes, and face-to-face meetings is the way you got stuff done. Um, so it, it necessitated a lot of sitting down and talking. I think that could be also a big difference between nowadays is like the, the losing part of personal communication is also this kind of losing part of this like emotion of someone that you, that you don't feel anymore. If you just write an email and then, uh, because I feel like the, the problem is of, of this internet communication is a lot of times, um, you don't feel the impact anymore. You know, if like someone comes to you personally to your table and says, this is something I would like to do or something like that, you feel the presence and something like that. But if you someone likes write you an email and says, we changed the company's course, uh, like next year, you read it, but your, your mind and your, your, your mentality doesn't really get it sometimes. So I feel like just meant that you mentioned that I feel like that's actually a, a, a big point actually with all the tricks that you do like you know different styles of communication and stuff like that i think at the end of the day it's super hard to replace the personal aspect of that maybe also like a way of uh, approaching that and, and finding ways to at least make the important communications in person i was reading um in the wiki article which is super practical by the way that uh, in 1985 uh you were proposing a feature length cg animation film a way to go in there w what happened there i would be because it was like before any animation film actually happened i think we we set the goal of someday making fully computer animated feature films around 1984 and 1985 right which was um That's right around when Tron came out, in fact. So, so there was evidence that could be done, and we're trying a lot of different ways. Uh, Richard was working with uh, an art director, I believe an art director out of Lucasfilm, uh, who had a project idea that he was interested in. And they met with George Lucas, who, I mean, Richard would be better to tell the story, who basically laughed them out of the room, thinking no one would ever watch a fully CG movie. <laughs> I think the idea was it was possible it would be a very different art direction than you would see today because you have to design around the limitations of what the technology can do at the time. Uh, Tron being a good example of that, right? Very simple geometric things. There's a reason that the first movies that fully animated movies came out were plastic toys and exoskeleton insects and then robots. Right? There's a reason for that um, because those things are really doable. It would have been a very different type of design if we did it early. And then in the 90s, we did two waves of pitching film projects. Uh, the first one was uh, well before, I think, when probably when Pixar announced they were doing their deal with Disney to produce what eventually would be Toy Story. We did, we did a round to a lot of pretty much all the studios who were curious about computer graphics and basically all said, um, no one's going to sit through Tron again. Tron was not a huge hit when it came out originally. Um, so so they were curious about it, but it's like no one, no one's going to ever do that again. Then, um, and we had some ideas that, that we had pitched. Uh, and then prior to Toy Story coming out, Tim Johnson, who was one of our animators, one of our animation directors, uh, actually took time and developed a few, a few scripts, a few story ideas 
And we took those around before Toy Story came out to all the studios again. And again, it was easy to get the meetings. They were all very curious. Um, but our approach was really different. This time it was, there's a movie coming out called Toy Story. It's going to be huge. And after that, you're going to be really interested in doing computer animated fe features. And we're the people who are ready to do it. So we're the ones you want to talk to. And then we showed them, um, I think there were three concepts. One was called Bugs. Uh, and it was about microscopic insect-like characters that were also very robotic. And they, they basically were responsible for entropy in the world. So breaking things down, that was their job. Um, and a, a wonderful adventure at this kind of mac microscopic, quasi-robotic, quasi-insect scale um, that was really fun. And the other one was called Gargoyles, um, uh, which was about gargoyles <laughs> coming, coming alive <laughs> and, and what happened in their world, um, which, again, would be incredibly exciting and, and dramatic. So um, we even had some animation tests for the Bugs one, and we pitched those all around. But, but we said, you know, after Toy Story comes out, you're going to be really interested in this kind of stuff. You know, we're, we're the people you want to call. Um, and so we had a whole bunch of meetings. Toy Story came out right around Thanksgiving. Um, and then, honestly, the next Monday, after the box office results were in, just about all the studios called us back and said, yeah, we want to meet with you again. Um, oh, nice. And that started a lot more meetings that Tim and I went to. Um, uh, the one company we couldn't get to before that was DreamWorks that had just started up in the prior year. Eventually, I just cold called Jeffrey Katzenberg's office and we got a return call from uh, Sandy Rabins and Penny Finkelman Cox, who were the two uh, producers for um, Prince of Egypt at the time. And they were interested in talking to us. And so while we we're meeting with everyone else, uh, Tim and I met with them and um, it was one of the worst pitch meetings we ever had. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. What, what, like, what happened? It was so here. Here was a great lesson about doing your your uh, homework ahead of time. So Pixar had just gone public uh, and there was a document called the S1 document, which is the document that is all the stuff you have to file that the public gets to build trust in your company and all the background information. There were financials in there. Um, and, and the financials of Toy Story were not crystal clear because it was Disney financed a bunch of it and Pixar financed a bunch of it. Um, but they asked us for the project that we pitched, how much do you think it would cost to produce this film? And, um, we said, well, with the caveat for, for just the production, so not including post-production editing and sound and voices and stuff, but our part of producing it would probably be, what was the number then? I, uh, $20 million, around $20 million to do it. And uh, Sandy said, no, that's, it would cost you much more than that. I said, well, you know, Pixar just went public. I read through the S1 filing. And from that, it really looks like Toy Story cost about $20 million to produce. So I think we're in the right ballpark. And Sandy does this and says, I was the producer of Toy Story and I was responsible for the budget. I know exactly what it costs and it costs a hell of a lot more than that. And it's like, oh, <laughs> oh no. 
Oh, you were? (laughs) I didn't know that. It's just like, what an idiot. That was a pretty good schooling there about know who you're talking to and what their background is and and such. Um, Caveat, uh, afterwards, because we worked with them on on ants and and a lot of things with DreamWorks, um, the actual production for the animation was pretty close to 20 million. But in Sandy's head, the budget included post-production and sound and all that other stuff. And yes, it was a lot more than that. Um, so I, I was kind of right. <laughs> <laughs> like in a way, yeah, yeah. exactly. And then the other, the other part in that meeting was, um, Sandy will probably watch this. Uh Oh, uh, anyway, at, <laughs> near the end of the meeting, we were also pretty far along in conversations with Warner Brothers because um, they were interested in doing doing similar things. Um, and so near the end of that meeting, uh, and again, this was early December, um, and Sandy said, well, we're, we have to go to Egypt because of some Prince of Egypt uh, stuff, and um, we'll give you a call back after the new year. And I said, I thought very politely, if you're interested um, and could let us know at all ahead of that, that'd be, that would be great because we are talking to some other people. And, you know, she gave me one of these that's just, I told you, we'll call you after the beginning of the year. And it's like, disciplined. <laughs> it's like, <"Argh." laughs> um, We left and Tim and I are going, that's just that's not going to happen. That was good try on our part, but they hated us. Then we spent the rest of the month negotiating, uh, talking to the other studios, but really talking a lot with Warner Brothers. And that deal went from good to just really horrible over the process of negotiating with them for various reasons. Um, so it was pretty disheartening. And then right after the beginning of the year, uh, Sandy and Penny called us back and said, come on down for a meeting. Um, and we did, and that's when we met with Jeffrey for the first time. They had two projects that they were looking at. One, one was Ants and one would become Shrek. Um, both were just in the storyboarding or ideation phase. Um, and they said, you know, would you be interested in working on one of those? And it's like, yes, the one with the insects and, and again, one of the projects that we did was in that realm anyway. But the other one, it's, you know, this ogre with hair and clothes and, and skin and stuff. It's like, not that one yet. It's too early for that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and within a month and a half, I think we announced to the world that we were doing a deal together in mid-February. So after that, it happened really fast. And then... We made Ants and then we made Shrek. And How much of the success was actually expected from Toy Story? Because it was completely new. No, no one ever saw that. No one could predict it. I think most people were probably thinking of it of maybe like a, something like Tron in a way because computer graphics and maybe something for kids. So it would be interesting for me to first understand is like how, how did the hype actually work? Because you mentioned it's kind of like, oh, there was a success uh, kind of predicted. So you were already kind of on the trail. Well, we really believed obviously in the future of computer animation and what could be done. Um, the 90s were a golden age for animation. I mean, Disney animation, thanks to Jeffrey Katzenberg, had had a rebirth um, and and was doing phenomenal work. So there was a, a huge interest in animation, a big market for it. 
Um, and you could start to see a lot of great things being done in computer graphics, although primarily in commercials and and visual effects for films. So you could you could see the hint of what was possible there. And short films, um, which a lot of us were doing short films. Which PDI was a, a big part of uh, yeah. like in this time. Also. Yeah, and, and part of that was to exercise ourselves. Part of it was a creative outlet. And part of it was to create a catalog of things that would would be able to show that you can do this work and you can tell really wonderful, compelling stories with interesting characters. Um, so I think people within the computer graphics world were, were very excited and very confident that Toy Story would be huge. Um, outside of that, I think people in the animation world were probably, probably optimistic and very curious. And outside of that, I think people had no idea what they were in for. And I mean that in for in a in a really positive way. Um, didn't realize what they were going to see, and it was so different and so exciting and so surprising um, that it it enabled everyone else to to jump on and be able to do it too. Yeah, because that's something I, I wouldn't expect it to be honest. Because uh, like it sounded something like you you are used to the to the Disney movies. You know, they already had. I think it started already to have a, a little bit of three D part and stuff like that. But you were not used to full blown three D movies. So it it sounds more like a risk. And so for me, like when I when I was was like what guess how how people felt about that especially so like producers or like big companies i would like be more on the on the side of caution like at least that's what i what i was expecting so I, that's kind of a surprise for me to to see that more as a like silicon valley for animation uh, moment basically where there's like oh yeah this will blow up uh, in 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 this in this whole industry and it basically created the opportunity literally one week later for, for you to go on. What was actually the pitch here? So how did you kind of approach the whole thing? Because you probably pitched throughout the years before. And this time you already had like a case study where you can say like, I know the numbers and I know kind of that this will be successful if we done if done right. So so what was the angle that you that you were trying to go like specifically with PDI? Where where was PDI next to Pixar, for example? We had developed a full script uh, and treatments for a couple of other ideas. Uh, we had maquettes of of characters. Uh, we had some storyboards. We had a, a lot of artwork to show what it could look like. So we did everything you would do for an animated film or for a live action film, right? Of kind of support materials to explain the project you want it to do. Um, and obviously we were open to exploring any other ideas <laughs> or projects uh, along that way. Because, you know, maybe ours is the right one, maybe it's not. So it was really, uh, and then we had, you know, a huge demo reel and lots of, lots of great work that we could show that, you know, we're not blowing smoke. This is, This is the type of work we actually do. And um, we had done one little piece of test footage with one of the characters in the script that we had written. But we had short films. We had demo reels. We had, you know, we had the Pillsbury Doughboy dancing, all sorts of things. So it was easy to show that, that we had the capability. You know, there was a, a perhaps trepidation about, well, you're only 90 people and it takes a lot more than that to make a full film. And it's like, yeah, but we know how to ramp up and, you know, it won't be a problem. It'll be fine. 
Um, <laughs> 20 millions and then we were fine. Yeah, we, we uh, had a lot of confidence, at least when we were presenting to other people. <laughs> Welcome to our short mid-episode Coffee Break. If you love the content and would like to have a successful career in the film or games industry yourself, check out my website 21artistshow.com. There you can find helpful articles, masterclasses and coaching opportunities that help dozens of my students to bring their profession to the next level. That's all. Check out 21artistshow.com and share the podcast with cool people you know. Let's continue with the episode. Which is actually like the golden rule, you know, fake it till you make it and then make it afterwards. But it reminds me also on, on our last discussion where we actually had, when we talked about company culture, where we had this discussion about having a clear goal and a clear mindset and, and always checking with yourself. And I think one of the reasons that you actually did get this opportunity is besides the, the high quality on terminator and where on like all this commercial work that you did i think that you still kept this animation part of pdi alive and and kicking basically as i, as I read like 1992 was was actually the animation department founded i mean you probably can can uh, approve or not <laughs> like the wiki article basically that i read um and that was like a huge thing and as we talked last time um, you guys literally had to decide okay this is going well but this is not um what we want to end up in like a few years and i think that was one actually one of the reasons that pdi became one of the first ones who work on that because you invested heavily into something that was not proven or was not actually working yet um, and i think that sounds like um also one of the reasons why i think you got the chance because you already had a department actually going into that yeah and then um the the script that we had that we were taking around didn't magically appear out of thin air <laughs> tim johnson who was the head of our character animation department and one of our main character animators uh he actually took i'll say took six months off he was you know, on the payroll working, um, but six months of just working on story development, of writing the script, of working on the characters, uh, using the, the team, obviously, uh, writing a lot of drafts on the script, getting feedback from other professionals in the industry about it. So there was a lot of work of being able to have ideas, materials, storyboards, maquettes, um, all the pitch material to walk in and pitch to these people. It's like, yes, we know what we're doing. We're not, we're not telling you we could, if you have a animated film you want to make, we can make it. It's like, we, we have, we have it all right down to a script. And with a little bit of cash infusion, we can, we can turn it into a movie. And it was that level of commitment to no, we we're going to do this. And we, you know, it's not just you have the, the people and the capacity to do it, you have to have the creative chops and the ideas and, uh, and the commitment to, to produce your own stuff if you're not producing someone else's. Yeah. And actually that's, I think that's what I love about this whole founding days of animation and founding days of games is this, this over investment in the beginning. 
You know, there was not just like, I feel like I could do it. I would like, uh, if I would get, have the time and the money, I will suddenly, it will suddenly appear in some years. It was literally like you were, you were building up on so many fronts at the same time, which I believe you should do like in your personal life too. You know, if you want to, for example, make a game, you know, you maybe you never did a game in your life and you want to make the next World of Warcraft or Red Dead Redemption or something like that. It's not enough to just kind of, I have like modeling skills or something like that. You should actually made games before in some capacity before you you just found a company and then just like yeah um, if I if I would have fifty million I would do the next GTA Seven or something like that I think that's something we 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 really need to learn and nowadays again basically because we have so much opportunities and knowledge and accessibility that we sometimes forget to do the the millions of steps that we actually need to do before we can prove actually that we do it in the end you know the all just the money and the time uh, will not suddenly appear a product at the end of the day and i think that's something super super interesting and super helpful i brought back a prop let's see if i can get him in focus here we go so this is the maquette for the bugs project that we were pitching so this was our star character it's awesome. See, he could, he could cause some trouble. Is is that is that metal or was what what material is that? Uh, this is just it's painted plasticine. That's awesome. Today you would probably three D print such. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> much much easier to create something. But I think that's also like a big pitching tip. Tip I think you, I hear from you is like if you have an opportunity to have it like haptically, if you have to, if you can touch it. I think it always like makes people much easier to say yes to. You know, literally like if you create a book and you already give someone basically a, like a prototype of the book or something like that, it just feels like more real. You know, it's more like already there, kind of. So I think that's a great one. 98 was actually then the, the release. There was still three years of, of hard work and maybe reorganization. How did you change the company? And what was the process actually to finish up Ants? So when we started with DreamWorks, when we did the, the very first deal with them, there were between 90 and 100 people in the company. By the time we finished Ants... Uh, I don't know the exact number. It was well over 150. I mean, we had to bring in a lot of people, we being PDI and DreamWorks. And a lot of that was was much more on the production management side because we had never produced a project of that magnitude. A lot of the art department were people first brought in. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of kind of production management top, top level in that area. Uh, editorial group, um, all that. We, from Ants, we rolled into doing Shrek. So DreamWorks had been trying to produce Shrek the entire time we were making Ants. Um, and that's that's their history that you can go read about. <laughs> <laughs> the other CEO I have to interview for that one. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really interesting what they were trying to do. Um, they thought they could do it with motion capture, so there were a lot of tests there. Uh, Chris Farley was the original voice of Shrek. Um, and it wasn't working right. We had another project that we were developing with them that we thought was going to be the next project that we'd produce. Um, but uh, then we pivoted into doing Shrek. And then 
Shrek, there was a lot of R&D up front. Um, they were interested in doing it as animated characters in model and miniature environments. So um, there was a lot of exploration about the practicality of that. And um, we eventually convinced them and they convinced themselves that it was much better to do the whole thing as CG. Um, you get a lot more control. Uh, you get a lot more flexibility. And it's ultimately going to be a lot less expensive because you don't have to have giant sets of environments. So we went into production on Shrek. Uh, and our original deal with DreamWorks was a three-picture production deal, even though they were 40% owners of the company. And we were most of the way through producing Shrek. Um, oh, and and then we continued to grow. So I think by the time Shrek was finished, there were 350 or 400 people in the company. I mean, it it, it was really large. A lot. Yeah. Um, uh, most, most of the way through Shrek or near the end of Shrek is when I was getting really restless to do something else. <clears throat> um, for me, the, the journey to producing that the goal I had started with of creating animation for TV and films, we had reached and the goal that we had modified in the mid eighties of we're going to do fully computer, fully computer animated feature films we had accomplished, right? So we did everything we set out to do, which which would seem like I would be really happy and elated. And it's like, cool, I can just kind of kind of cruise now. We're, we're doing it and we'll just do more of it and more of it. Um, for me, I found myself getting really restless at this point. And what I discovered about myself is it wasn't accomplishing that goal that was really the great thing. It was, it's going to sound really cliched, but it was the journey. It was the trip. It was everything it took to get there that was really exciting. Uh, and I find, found myself as we were producing Shrek, and there was an amazing team working on that, um, that the things I was interested in doing was a continuation of the 20-year history we had had at that point, which is we have this amazing technology it's not finished. It's still evolving. The opportunities are still evolving. Where else can we take this? What else can we do with this? Um, and fully animated feature films are not the end of the game or don't have to be the end of the game. So you remember this thing called the Internet was starting up in the late 90s. And it was clear there were going to be a lot of opportunities there. And we were we had this amazing group of people in the middle of Silicon Valley who knew technology inside out and backwards and can do incredible things with it. And it seemed like there were going to be a lot more opportunities. Uh, virtual reality actually started in the 80s. And we had been, you know, able to go try out things in the 80s and 90s about where that was going. Um, I love science fiction and the idea of augmented reality had been out there for a while. Um, and, you know, there's some some great seminal science fiction books that came out in the 90s about where that was going. And the same place we were in the in the late 70s, early 80s of looking about looking at the future of where you can apply computer graphics still applied. There's emerging technologies, there's emerging opportunities there. 
where you can take the ability to create images in interesting ways and present them to people in unique ways um, that are going to be amazing opportunities. And so I would, I would uh, pitch ideas to, to DreamWorks and they'd, they'd say, really interesting, no. Really interesting, no. And it soon became clear that what DreamWorks really wanted to do was fully computer animated feature films. Um, and their agenda was going from one film every two years to eventually they were trying to do two or three films a year. And that was just not interesting to me, even though it's what I had been trying to do for 20 years. Once I got there, it's like, no, it's the I loved the part of trying to figure out how to even do broadcast graphics. And then we, we could do that. How do we do animated films and who are the people or or commercials and who are the people and what are the opportunities and what skills and and tools do we need to be able to do that? And then film effects. And then finally, animated features. And it's like, I want to keep doing that stuff. Um, and that wasn't going to happen there. So I left. Or I eventually left. <laughs> um, to w Without a specific goal of how or where I was going to do that. But I knew that staying at PDI for me was going to be a frustrating thing because I wasn't getting to do the fun, creative stuff that I really wanted to do. And I wasn't going to get the chance to push it into some interesting new other directions. Yeah, I feel like this is something um, that you don't see when you start things, you know, in the start of your career or when you start a company, I feel like you always pursue the goal and you actually like you're so focused on the goal that you that you whatever for whatever kind of like basically company culture wise whatever costs you you want to achieve there and if you burn people if you burn yourself if you uh like make roads that are not actually aligned with yourself you want to get to the goal but i think you know, the older you get the, the more professional in your career and as a founder in your case I think you you notice that the way is actually the one that is the most interesting. That's the one that you experience each day. You know, like if you see like ants three years, okay, then you have a movie. But there was still three years, like three times 365 days kind of situation where even if you didn't work, you were thinking about it and processing it. So I think that's something you kind of learn through time or when you actually achieve your goal. And then you're like... It was never actually about the goal. The goal pushed away, which is important, of course. But the goal was actually never the goal. The the, the experience was the goal, kind of. There. And I think that's something uh, people don't recognize a lot of times, especially if you are in a specific position where you like make a decision that people will like kill for. Basically, you know, like, why do you leave like a company or your own company and stuff like that? I think that's super hard to understand. So for me, it would be interesting. Because specifically, I think the phase between uh, like 95 and 2000 with Ants and Shrek, what was the the time or what did change for you in this five years? Uh, because I think it was probably this two project that made the big twist because it was the, the goal you arrived where you are, wanted to be, but then you leave uh, in, the mo in the moment where everything kind of you know, comes together and you can now really produce as many animation films that you want. So for me, it was like, what was about this five years and this two projects and what happened in there for you in your, your own process that made the change for you? I think for me, 
you know, when, when I left, I didn't realize that was the reason. I just knew I was really frustrated. Um, and kind of bored. There, there was so much happening. There wasn't really time to be bored, but not, not creatively engaged and excited. Um, so I think it was, it was that frustration of wanting to be doing creative things, not businessy things. And even though I had been running the business and of the three of us, you know, I was the business guy. It was always around, if I don't get to do the creative work, then my job is to enable other people to do the creative work so I can be, you know, around that. And that was all, there was a machine now that did that. That's, that's what the animation company did. And so the opportunity for me to, to enable people to do that creative stuff was done. So the kinds of things that I was, I was dealing with is either figure out kind of what's the next generation, where do we go, where's the future stuff, which I love, or deal with whatever the fire of the day is. And there were a lot of fires always happening. <laughs> and that was not the interesting part because there, there was no creative reward for doing that, you know, other than that fire was put out. So it was at the time just feeling that, that frustration and that eagerness to do something creative and not, not having an outlet for it. But it was much later when I figured out why that was right. That, that what it was that was driving me and compelling me. I just knew at the time that I was not having any fun. From there, I went into venture capital for three years uh, at, at the peak of the bubble, right? So the timing was not great, <laughs> watching it down. Um, and I thought that I would really enjoy that because I would be working with uh, creative companies that are starting up, that are that are taking interesting technologies and applying them in really fun ways. Not true. It was too distant removed. And, you know, the job was really about ultimately managing other people's money, not much more than helping these young creative companies do fun, creative stuff. Then I took some time off. I did a startup around helping youth produce media that was really fun, but we never found a, a marketplace for that. And then for the past 12 or 13 years, I've been with Carnegie Mellon in a group called the Entertainment Technology Center. What's really compelling about that is, and, and I think this is when I came to the re realization of what was going on, <laughs> is I'm working with a whole bunch of People, they happen to be really young because they're master's students, right? Who are, um, have grown up in a digital era, really excited about new technologies, about ways to apply technology to doing creative work, whether it's for the games industry, the, the animation and, and visual effects industry, or all sorts of other applications. It's dealing with all sorts of emerging platforms whether it's AR or VR or mobile devices, all sorts of stuff. And being able to experiment in, you know, with creative minds using new tools and having to create tools in emerging technologies is just really exciting and fun. And that's the part I was missing at PDI is like 
where where do we push things forward again? That's kind of a convoluted long answer. <laughs> I don't know if I got to what, what you were interested in. No, I mean, I mean that's that's the thing. It's it's uh, it's always kind of hard to pin down. We we grow and then we we find a lot of times when we look back what what was actually the thing that we're missing. Um, a lot a lot of times it is just um, the framing. You know, like like a lot of times I see myself doing the same thing with just a different framing, and then suddenly from completely not enjoying something to completely enjoying something. I mean, I, I don't know. I think you you're in this case very similar to me. I love the the creation part. I love the part where you still guerrilla a little bit, uh, where you where you have the opportunities of pushing. I'm I'm for example someone who who likes to burn everything down and start from scratch. Uh, if I if I see the the like you know for example if I see like the pipeline is not good like instead of like uh, ten years of of changing is like can we just delete the whole thing and and spend a year of rebuilding it and then have a patch and don't have the frustration of ten years of of trying to kind of fix it so I, I absolutely absolutely get it why not just shift the whole company to a different direction and just say like. This is uh, this is what I like to do, basically. So that was also an opportunity. So why why did the other way? It wasn't really an option. Um, there was a company built to create animation. A, a lot of great individuals who were interested in other things, but a lot of people there were interested in that. But um, I I had equivalent control as DreamWorks, technically, like on paper. But the reality of of doing production and and such isn't that right. So if you just think about, well, I'm doing a project, you know, if you take even the stock ownership out of it, I'm doing a project for a client, you know, but it's my company, so I'm in control. It's like, no, the client's in control, right? It's the project they either, you know, that they want you to do. So you have to produce that for them. There were not the financial resources to tell DreamWorks, it's like, hey, we'd really like to do another film for you, but instead we're going to do this other thing. It's, it's you know, as with any production company, you're you're running on a really thin margin. So so the reality of pivoting in another direction is, is not an option at all. Um, and I was probably the only one who was that frustrated, right? There were 350 other people who were really excited about doing what they were doing and were living the dream that we had been pitching for you know 20 years. I think at that point if you're if you're frustrated it's like don't drag everyone else in that other direction. Yeah. They're all really happy, right? The the problem's here, not there. Um so, you know, if if it's just me and I'm the one who's frustrated, then I should go do something else, not try and pivot that whole thing. But DreamWorks was very much in charge because it was their projects and their their money who, that was financing all those projects. That's uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's that makes absolute sense. It's it's it always sounds so easy, you know. If you if you feel like oh yeah yeah like I I'm like for example I have sixty percent of the company, the other one has forty. So as long I will I will have the last saying basically kind of thing. But in, in terms of of course for your in your position you also have to think about like. Is it just me? And I think that's always, I think, the hardest question is like, uh, how much is this just kind of a thing that only involves your your decision, and how much is it honest 
for you are honest for the company. I think I think some, something like that, uh, for me, it would probably mean like sleepless nights because uh, to figure out like is like how much should I push and how much should I kind of back out? So I can only imagine that this is super complicated. So how did you approach that like ending phase of that? Because it's like, it's not something like you were, you suddenly come to the office and say like, guys, uh, or or something like that. I can imagine that was there was also probably meetings involved and yeah, it it was a process. Um, so I didn't own six. It wasn't sixty forty. They had forty percent. I actually had forty percent also, and the other twenty percent were all the employees. Um, so when I decided it was time for me to leave, I sat down with the person I dealt with at DreamWorks and said, "I'm I'm ready to leave, and I'd like you to just." buy me out. Um, there were a couple other dynamics that were pretty interesting at the time. So the whole pipeline that we had developed was a pipeline that PDI had built. Uh, and DreamWorks wanted to use that pipeline for doing other animated films. And we were perfectly fine with them using that if they licensed it from us, but we wouldn't just give it to them. Uh, so they produced Shark Tales, but they did it with not our software. They did it with off-the-shelf systems and things that they had built. They really wanted to use our software. We were perfectly fine. We would actually prefer them to use our software so that everyone's on the same pipeline. And for whatever reason, they didn't want to pay a licensing fee. And they said, well, but we've, you know, we've paid for, you know, all the software that development that's happened in the past three years or four years or something we've paid for. So we should own that. And it's like, look, if you want to get, if you want to go figure out what code, you know, was made after you came in, you know, the, for ants and Shrek, we can do that. And, you know, even if there's an argument that you own that, we can give you that code, but the whole foundation that it runs on isn't yours. We had that before you guys showed up. So it's like that, the argument doesn't make any sense. So we would go back and forth and it's like, just license it from us and 40% of what you're paying is your own money. It's, you know, it's to you and it's into a company that you own, you know, a huge stake on and you're going to someday own the whole thing anyway. And they didn't want to do that. So part of it was, look, I want to leave. You guys should buy me out. There's a lot of good reasons for you to do it. One, I won't be in your hair anymore. Two, you'll have all the software and you can do whatever you want with it. And then we had to negotiate. And the negotiation process was um, a little painful because they com they came back and completely lowballed it. They said, you know, we'll give you a small amount of money for it. It's like, no, it's worth a lot more than that. And their argument was, well... You know, we own 40% of the company. And it's not like there's a big market to buy 40% of the company out there. So you're kind of stuck with whatever we tell you it's worth. And I said, no. <laughs> um, was there, you know, would other people buy it? Maybe, I don't know. But I said, look, it because they were just, I mean, it was a nasty negotiation tactic. And I basically said, look, if I go back up to PDI and I say you guys are a bunch of, you know, jerks and you're trying to lowball this. And by the way, the employees own 20% of the company too. So it's their value. I'm quitting and I'm storming out. I, 
I said, I think enough people will follow me out the door that you won't get Shrek delivered. Um, and he looked at me and said, yeah, that's probably true. So how about we bring in a third party company to do evaluation on it? And said, that sounds fine. <laughs> so as you know, one of, the, oh, wow. one of the big accounting firms came in and did a big analysis and, um, you know, basically said, here's what we think the company is worth. And then we negotiated a little bit around that. And that became the value that, that was set at that point for it. But that, that again, that was an unnecessarily painful process because it's just like, just be reasonable, you guys. You know, it's, um, there's a lot of comps out there and a lot of ways we can figure out what this is worth. Um, you don't have to try and strong arm it. Um, but that was when we were doing the original deal with them, I walked out on those negotiations, too, because they were doing similar you know, the, the original deal was they would take a minority ownership and then the piece of paper that was slid across the table said 80%. And it's like, that's not a minority ownership. Um, and then they presented all sorts of reasons that that was the reasonable thing to do. And we walked out of the room. We left. Um, and then I called them back a couple days later and said, I have a counter proposal for you that was 20%. Um, and they said, no, that's ridiculous. And then then we found a common ground that worked for everyone. And before that, when we did the original deal with, with Globo TV, I walked out on that negotiation too, when they changed the terms at the last minute. And then the next day, they reverted back to the original terms and everything was fine. So I, I was used to walking out of negotiations that were really important negotiations. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, um, you know, you gotta, you gotta believe in what you're doing and believe in it at a level that um, you're not going to let someone else define the rules. You just have to, you know, believe deeply in it. But, you know, that the negotiation process is, is always a difficult thing, right? So, so we got through all three of those things. I walked out and we're all really good friends afterwards. I mean, there's no hard feelings when you do that. The deal ends up getting done and, you know, everyone's a little testy for a while, but um, you got through. I had a great relationship with with the people at DreamWorks and the people at PDI afterwards. It, you know, that was all fine. It was just a little bumpy there for a while. <laughs> there was a, a lot of good tips about negotiation, I think, because that's one of the things I actually noticed that a lot of people uh, like don't like either go much too personal in this whole thing. And in a way it is personal, you know, like it is, for example, in this case, it is your company. There's a lot of money involved. I think you cannot completely detach yourself. Like, you know, 20 years of investment and then suddenly someone comes and says like, mm, this, this is what you get. And you're like, this is not even reasonable. I think you cannot completely detach it from, okay, this is not personal and this is just numbers and stuff like that. I think the, 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 the hard part is, to not put too much respect into money. You know, if someone gives you an offer, it's it's their calculation of what they can kind of get away with. In a way, that's what we try to do. We don't want to kind of throw money at the wall and then say, okay, everyone kind of a little bit tries to get away with something in, in a negotiation. And I think you basically said it, and I, I, that's one of, one of the things that I actually teach when I talk with people to about contract negotiation is like, you, you must be able to get, to go away. 
You must be able to stand up and leave the table or the email or whatever in a way that people feel, okay, if if it's not in a way that works for you, you should make it very clear that this is not the only thing that you have in your life, basically. And I think if you have this mentality, that's the, the best way for yourself, like mentally, you know, and also for the other person to kind of recognize, okay, there we, we cannot just push you around because in a lot of sense, like even like, for example, if you're an employer and you want to have to work for a company, this is the strong arm tactics kind of can be there too, because you are like one guy and there is a big company where you want to work for. And there's suddenly like, hey, we are Pixar, we are uh, whatever. Um, you want to work for us, here's the contract, good luck or go away. And then, and then if you like, ah, this is not exactly what I want. And then you have to like, sorry guys, I, I, I know my worth. I, I have like specific things that I care about. And if you don't care about it, I go. As long as you keep a nice tone, a positive like relationship, as you basically mentioned at the end of the day, you're still friends. You're still kind of uh, like can't talk with each other. It's not just like rotten and everything. I think if you can't keep it throughout the way of this feeling of you're still in negotiation, even if sometimes it feels like a dead end, um, I think that's the the thing where where you you are not as much afraid of that everything will blow up because you're still kind of like. I try to, to understand you and I try to come into your direction, but I will not accept that kind of thing. And I think that's super important. You, you should probably do a, a course on that one, kind of like teach people how to, how to create contracts and to negotiate prices or something like that. I would definitely go into this course. Well, I, I think you're right. If, you, if you're not willing to walk away from the negotiation, then you're not really negotiating, right? And the other thing that... I learned really early on that was a huge mental help uh, was that for a lot of people who are, we'll call them professional negotiators, it's a game, right? It's a challenge to see what they can do and what they can't do. And if you're not treating it as a game, then you're going to lose the game because they're going to play all sorts of tricks and, and things. So you have to go in knowing you can lose. Right. And by lose, I mean the deal doesn't happen. Um, you have to go in for that. And it's really hard to do, but having an attitude of it's a game and we're going to play this game and it's going to be fun. It's, it's not fun, <laughs> but just that attitude, knowing that, that they're playing it as a game. Um, so you better too. You better like get into that. But it also means that it it's not going to be personal that way, right? It's it's a game. It's not a fight. And if you end up doing the deal, then everyone's satisfied because you did the deal. I think that's the game part is actually something I noticed too. And you probably had the situation where you sit there and you listen to someone and you notice the tactic or the trick that they're using and you're like start they have to smile suddenly and you're like, and your brain only thinks how to react to that kind of thing. You know, if like someone like, for example, offers you something ridiculously low and you're like, mm -hmm, or, or someone brings like sentences. I remember uh, one company told me, um, uh, asked me kind of um, what, what I was expecting, but in a way that they already kind of said, um, that's what we pay our employees. And then they asked me in the next sentence uh, what I'm expecting. And I was like, can only have one. We cannot have both. Like you cannot like tell me this is what we pay. So what you want? 
is like already kind of this called anchoring basically. Um, and uh, this is like where I'm like, I was kind of smiling a little bit and I, I was like, okay, this is a little bit cheap, but I, I okay, I, I, I get it. So my, my response email was in the same park, you know, it was kind of like, like, yes, I understand what, what you do do, but for my po point, and then I was going into that. And I think that's important. It's kind of just playing a game. And I think the same applies for everything, you know, like even if you, if you want to make a point or want to bring your, your company in a specific direction, I think also with your partners, you have to kind of play a little bit of a game. You shouldn't be like, a, kind of, I want this, um, but a little bit, a little bit kind of this dancing in a positive way together, I think is, is part of everything. And if you can approach that in a, in a way of a gamification, basically way, I think it, it makes everything much more enjoyable. Even if you have this strong emotion sometimes and you get kind of frustrated, you still can at least like, okay, I understand. I see a little bit from the outside and you have a little bit of a moment where you, where you like, I'm, I'm still like very emotional, but I can also see this, this back and forth game that we're playing. And I think that helps a lot, a lot of times. We basically kind of wrapped, wrapped up the, the whole history. And um, sadly, 2015, they finally closed the doors for PDI. Was that something that still kind of connected with you at that moment? Or were you so already like 15 years so far away that it was like watching the news basically for you? It was definitely an emotional thing when, when DreamWorks finally closed PDI up here. For sure. And they did um, a very well done kind of closure event that Glenn and Richard and I were invited to. So so we were there the official final day. It, it kind of lingered. A lot of things lingered after that. Um, so, yeah, it would it was sad, even though I hadn't been there for a long time to see the end of it. Um, I honestly was surprised it lasted as long as it did. <laughs> Yeah, because they didn't have to. They didn't have to keep it going that long, but they did. So that was that was wonderful. Um, they kept the the name way longer. I mean, the fact that they they didn't just call it DreamWorks Northern California or something, but kept the PDI DreamWorks name that whole time was uh, exciting to see. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it was for you in a way a life's work. Um, that the whole thing and um, you, you, your baby is grown up now, like 20 years, actually, <laughs> when you left, they were, were already kind of were, were out there and studying and working as a job. So, uh, but I feel like that's why I was asking, because I feel like you can never completely detach from something that you spend so much time in. It's the same thing if you work for a company for so many years and then maybe you're like not there for 10, 20 years, you're still if something happened with that company, even if you were just an employer, I feel like there is still like a big connection to that. And for you, it's probably even much, much stronger. 2000 was the time where you tried to figure out a new way and you did the venture capital. And so, so what's the thing that nowadays, what's the, what's the, because I, I know that you're still very active. You're still kind of going your personal thing. I know that you did like, I saw your YouTube videos. I, I, I know that you were doing all this like games uh, project that you're doing and teaching and stuff like that. So what is the core of the things that you enjoy now? What, what's Carl Rosendale? project at the moment, basically. There's two directions of things that I'm really enjoying. They're, they're both creative. One is on the technical side, and, and a lot of that is around ETC, 
the Entertainment Technology Center at CMU that I'm a part of. Um, and a lot of that is around augmented reality um, under a very broad umbrella of what that means. But basically, uh, kind of merging all these interesting technologies in, in machine learning, in natural language processing, in all the visual side of, a, of creating imagery, imagery and merging it with the real world in interesting ways. Um, and still, I think for me, the part I'm really excited about that is, has always been 10 to 20 years off is, is having animated characters that live in your real world with you, right? So um, whether they're agents for you, which I, I think is probably the practical application of it, um, you know, your, your series, your Alexas, your Hey Googles personified in, in interesting ways and living in the world with you. And I think it's going to be really interesting. And a lot of gaming technology is what's going to make that happen because it's almost there. It's just, there's a screen barrier and all the AR tech wearable technology is still very far off before we get that. But there's all sorts of fun things you can be doing now to Dip your toes in that and experiment with things and kind of get a taste of where that can go. So that part of it is really exciting and really interesting. And then in the non-professional side, a lot of my art is, is much more analog now. So sketching, drawing, doing woodworking, things with my hands. Um, also a lot of things with Arduinos and uh, all that kind of technology. I just love to build tangible things that mostly are there just for, for creative artistic purpose. Um, a few, which are a little more useful than that. Uh, I think I will always be, be a creative person who's making things and creating things. Um, sometimes with purpose, sometimes without. That's it with this week's episode of the 21 Artist Show. Thank you so much for watching and listening. This podcast is 100% ad-free. And to keep it that way, check out my website, 21artistshow.com. There you can find exclusive access to awesome masterclasses and coaching opportunities to work successfully in visual effects, animation, and games. Just go to 21artistshow.com. And don't forget to share it with people who would benefit from that content and tell them they're awesome. See you on the next episode. Next on the 21 Artist Show. When I was working in the different companies that, that I have been working, most of the people is not from London, not even from the UK. Most of the people is from Spain, Italy, France, Germany. And then, of course, from many other places. But it's all this group of people is like, the, when, when you see someone that is coming from Spain or from Italy or from all the other places, it's like, they are these people that they made a change in their life because they devote themselves to that craft enough to change their lives to go there. That is a huge respect that I have for that.